Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So uh, perhaps unless you are actually from Texas or otherwise immersed in Texas history, the most famous part of the Texas Revolution is definitely the Siege of the Alamo. It's such a big part of the cultural consciousness in the United States that we have two different episodes in the archive about it. One's from way back in the beginning. It walks through the lead up to the siege and the siege itself and how Remember the the Alamo became this rallying cry for Texas independence. The other episode is on one of the famous figures associated with the Alamo, and that was Jim Bowie. And he had this long history as everything from a knife fighter to a slave trader before the siege actually happened. Today, we're going to talk about the opposite end of the Texas Revolution. So the Alamo wasn't at the very end. It was kind of the pivot before the very end. Uh, we're going to talk about the thing that played out almost at the very beginning today. And that is the Siege of Bexar. And if you are a Spanish speaker, you can probably roll your R at the end of that beautifully. If I try to do that, I sound like a child practicing Spanish for the first time. So please pardon my American pronunciation of Bexar. Bexar was in what's now San Antonio. Spanish conquistadors first arrived in that area in 1691. And it was, at that time, home to the Payaya people. And unfortunately, we don't know much about the Payaya beyond a few Spanish accounts, which were written in the 17th and 18th centuries. These people were either killed or absorbed into Spanish culture or other tribes in the area when Spain started started establishing missions there in the 1700s. Spain established a mission called San Antonio de Valero on May 1st, 1718, and this mission would later be known as the Alamo. A few days later, just over the river from the mission, they built a garrison known as San Antonio de Bexar, and together these formed a stopping point along a highly traveled route across uh, Mexico, and over time they grew into a town. Although the Spanish population was huge in other parts of Mexico, in what's now Texas, it was really never all that large. Bexar became the Spanish capital of Texas, but by the early 1800s, there were only 800 or so people actually living there. So in 1803, the United States acquired the Louisiana territories from France. And so all of a sudden, Spain was sharing a huge long border with the United States where it hadn't before. And this border ran right along territory where it just didn't have a lot of people. So Spain wanted to fix this situation, and it offered low-priced land in what's now Texas to entice about 300 United States citizens to settle in that area, provided that they would be loyal to Spain. So the idea was that they would turn Texas into this buffer between the United States and the rest of Mexico, where Spain had a lot more people and resources. This plan ran into a few problems. Uh, one, people did not actually start moving to Mexico until about 1822. But Mexico had actually become independent from Spain the year before that. And while Mexico did honor the land grants that Spain had made, most of the Anglos who moved there found that living in a fledgling nation just out of a war was less than desirable. Mexico had actually organized itself into a republic, and it had some similarities to the government in the United States. But 
this new government was really shaky and it went through this series of changes in leadership and coups and differences of opinion between the Federalists who wanted the government to be kind of decentralized and the centralists who were a lot more conservative and kind of wanted all of Mexico to be ruled by a solid, central, almost dictatorial government. So most of the immigrants from the states, of course, were on the federalist side, since that more resembled the ideals of the United States. Plus, while Spain and then Mexico had expected their newfound Anglo population to assimilate into the local culture, What actually happened was that the new colonists continued to speak English and kept up their strong ties to the United States. And soon, about 15,000 Anglo settlers and 1,000 slaves that they brought with them vastly outnumbered the Mexicans that were living in Texas. So the planned buffer zone instead became a threat. Mexico tried a number of strategies to stem the tide of Anglo immigrants. Since so many of the immigrants from the United States were staunchly pro-slavery, Mexico passed a number of laws to try to limit or abolish slavery, hoping to discourage further immigration. This didn't work, and it mostly just made the Anglo colonists resentful of the Mexican government. Then Mexico outlawed immigration from the United States entirely. But by that point, Texas, with its cheap land and promise of a new life, held such an allure that people just emigrated from the United States to Texas illegally anyway. After a while, Mexico passed a law that provided for a military occupation of Texas to try to keep things under control. And it also set up a system of customs houses to collect tax from these Anglo colonists. Naturally, none of this set very well with the colonists, who were really hoping to take advantage of all that cheap Texan land to create their own land of the free. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while or just like to study colonial history, you know what happens when a nation shows up in a colony and starts enforcing customs laws. It wasn't long before the Anglo colonists in Texas, known as the Texians, and their Spanish-speaking allies, called Tejanos, were on the road to a revolution. We're going to get to the revolution after a brief break for a word from a sponsor. So to return to our story, tensions between Texas and Mexico really started building up during the the early 1830s. And then in 1835, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who was then the Mexican president, repudiated the Mexican Constitution and essentially became a dictator. He switched sides from being a federalist to being a centralist in that process. And recognizing that these Anglo colonists in Texas represented a threat, he went after them with a vengeance. And for their part, the Texians did not really see much appeal in Santa Ana's rule, which was much less democratic than it had been before he tossed out the Mexican Constitution. Santa Ana started trying to disarm Texians wherever possible. And on October 2nd, 1835, that disarmament involved a small cannon in the village of Gonzalez. The Texians there resisted, and each side brought in reinforcements until the Texians finally attacked. This became the Battle of Gonzales, and it was the first battle of the Texas Revolution. At this point, Mexico had control of the town of Bexar, which had both strategic and symbolic importance. In addition to being the seat of Mexican government in Texas, it was also the last big stronghold of Mexican forces in the region. So taking Bexar would be a huge win for the Texian forces. Some names that will be familiar to anyone who's learned about the Alamo or uh, Texas history, what were really instrumental in the siege of Bexar as well. 
Stephen F. Austin had been elected to command the Volunteer Army, which was made up of Texians and Teanos. Austin had also established the first Anglo-American colony in Texas, and he was a hugely prominent figure in Texas at this point. But he wasn't really a military man, and he led this revolutionary army, which was also called the Army of the People, via debates and voting. William Barrett Travis, who was commander at the Alamo, was at Bexar as well, as was Jim Bowie, who had connections in the town and knew that Martin Perfecto de Cos, who was in command inside Bexar, had about 600 men there. Before the Texians decided to try to attack it, the Mexican forces fortified the town of Bexar with barricades flanked with trenches, lots of reinforcements on the doors. Many of the barricades also had holes in them to accommodate muskets and cannons. And then across the river, Mexico fortified the Alamo with cannons and other armaments as well. And because it was so well fortified, in October of 1835, Austin and his council of officers decided to lay siege to Bexar rather than outright attack it. Unfortunately, things started to go badly almost immediately. Because this army was an all-volunteer operation, people didn't have a lot of incentive to stay if they didn't like how things were going. And as soon as it became clear that they were basically going to wait and not fight, the volunteers who were a lot more interested in fighting started to walk away. One whole company vanished in the middle of the night. Many of the men had also joined up in the spirit of fighting for their ideals, but they really didn't have so much in the way of practice of being soldiers. Discipline was somewhere between lax and non-existent, and the waiting time was spent in all manner of games and tomfoolery. Drunkenness was actually such a problem that Austin wrote to the general council, quote, In the name of Almighty God, send no more ardent spirits to the camp. If any is on the road, turn it around or have the head knocked out. When the October weather started to turn wet and cold, disease also became a problem. And this was made worse by the fact that the camp was not far away from a field that was regularly used to slaughter livestock. And then in November, Austin was ordered to go to the United States to try to drum up more support for Texas. He ordered an attack on Bexar on November 22nd, just before he was to leave. But his men resisted that idea, so he called off the attack and then he left two days later. Taking his place was Edward Burleson, who had fought during the War of 1812 as part of his father's company. He had a reputation for really being fearless, but the army that he was taking over was struggling at this point. Thanks to attrition, there were only about 700 soldiers left. They were also very low on money and supplies, and many of the men who had stuck with it for all of these weeks were quite frustrated. On November 26th, there was, at last, a break in the tedium. Some Mexican forces were on the move. Their intent was not clear, but there was a rumor that it was hauling silver. Jim Bowie was sent out on recon, and about a mile outside the town, they found a mule train and they fired upon it. When the Mexican dragoons fled, Bowie's men pursued almost to the edge of the town until they were turned back by reinforcements. So when they got back to what was left of the mule train, they did not find any silver. What they found was cut grass. The Mexican forces had been out gathering food for the cavalry horses who were besieged in Bexar. This kerfuffle became known as the grass fight, and it comes off as kind of silly, but it was an indicator that things were not going well inside the town either. 
Not long after, Jim Bowie was ordered to Goliad to help with the fortifications, but he'd been glad to go. He found Austin's waffling and all that waiting to just be incredibly tiresome. Travis left at about the same time. Burleson, kind of following in Austin's footsteps, ordered an attack on Bexar to take place on December 1st. But once again, a lot of the men really balked at this idea, so again, the advance was called off. Burleson sort of saw the writing on the wall at this point. It was not going well. The men were resisting the command and and the, you know, actual step of attacking the town. So he decided to abandon the siege completely, and the army started packing up to go. But as preparations to leave were underway, a Mexican officer from Bexar rode out and surrendered. He told them that morale among the Mexican troops was very bad. They had no food and they were low on supplies. So at that point, it seemed like maybe the army should stay. While all of this was going on with the Mexican officer's surrender, Ben Milam, who had been out doing recon, heard about this plan to abandon the siege. He had fought in the War of 1812, and after moving to Texas from Kentucky, he'd been thrown into a number of Mexican prisons for a range of offenses. When he heard about this plan to just call the whole thing off, he was not happy about it, so he stopped what he was doing and rode back to Bexar. There he found Frank Johnson, who is General Burleson's adjutant, and after telling him in great detail all of the reasons why falling back to winter quarters was just absolutely the worst plan, the two men went to Burleson and laid out a plan to actually attack the town for real. Burleson, who had not really wanted to cancel his attack on Bexar in the first place, gave them the go-ahead as long as they could recruit enough men to carry it out from all of these guys who were packing up to leave. Fortunately, word had spread already that there was some kind of dust-up going on between Johnson, Milam, and Burleson. And so when they left Burleson's tent, they actually found hundreds of volunteers waiting for them. Milam asked who would join him in going to San Antonio. And as the men in front of him started yelling that they would, he stepped across a path and said, well, if you're going with me, get on this side of the road. Almost 300 men crossed the road to join him. The Some of the ones who didn't weren't really behind the idea of attacking, but they agreed to stay behind in the camp as a reserve. Burleson would stay with them and would also send out cavalry to make sure that Mexican troops could neither enter nor leave Bexar while the attack was going on. And the attacking force gathered on the north side of Bexar at about three in the morning on December 5th of 1835. Some of the 300 men never showed, perhaps having been convinced that this was actually a bad idea. Regardless, the attack began two hours later with a cannon fired at the Alamo as a diversion. And as Mexican infantry rushed toward the Alamo, Milam's men moved into Bexar. They separated into two columns that went down two parallel streets. One column was led by Milam and the other by Johnson. They also had local guides with them. These were Samuel Maverick, Erastus Smith, who was known as Deaf Smith because he was hard of hearing, John W. Smith and Henrik Arnold, and that last person was a free biracial man who had come to Texas from Mississippi. The Texian force broke down the doors of some buildings near the main plaza. Some of these were homes, and their residents fled. Others were uh, facilities housing Mexican troops, and they fought their way through and then established a base of operations in Bexar. The fighting wound up going on in Bexar for days, with soldiers going house to house, trying to work their way to the main plaza. When the streets were impassable because of cannons or musket fire, 
they took to the roofs, at least until Mexican snipers started shooting at them from the bell tower. Mexican forces responded to the slow Texian advance by digging new trenches and arranging their artillery to try to catch the invaders in the crossfire. But in the end, it was mostly hand-to-hand combat with bowie knives and bayonets, plus shots from the occasional pistols. For the most part, this fighting only took place during the day. But at night, the Mexican forces would use this time to move around, build new barricades, reinforce their positions, and generally try to slow down the Texian advance. A couple days in, the Texians started to try to figure out a plan to capture General Cos, who was holed up in the Mexican command post in a house south of the main plaza. Uh, while planning this assault, Milam, who had stepped outside to try to get a better look at their target, was actually shot in the head by a sniper. Texian troops nearby returned fire at the spot where the shot had come from, and after the battle was over, the body of Felix de la Garza, purportedly one of the Mexican army's best shots, was found in the river nearby. Milam was really the one who had turned the Texian army's tide from let's go home to let's attack Bexar, and so his death was a huge loss. To make matters worse, rumors started to circulate that there was a huge contingent of Mexican reinforcements on the way. The Texians were running out of gunpowder, and it was also raining. Frank Johnson was selected to take Milam's place, commanding the operation, but morale was really starting to flag. And reinforcements did arrive in the morning, 400 of them, along with soldaderas, who were soldier women who also cooked, cleaned, and cared for soldiers, and their children, under the command of Captain Jose Juan Sanchez. They marched across a wooden footbridge out of Bexar and into the Alamo. Soon, Cos left his command post and joined them there. Even though Sanchez had brought lots of troops, he had not brought any more food with them. The troops were also nearly starving and had just been through basically a a forced march, so they were exhausted. A lot of the soldiers were also convicts, which was true of a lot of the Mexican army. But some of these convict recruits were so new that they were still shackled. So it turned out that even though the Mexican army now had a whole lot more men, it didn't actually help. At this point, the Mexican army, hungry, exhausted, low on supplies, had to act. Coast arranged an attack, not on the town of Bexar, but on the Texian camp outside the town. He sent cavalry and infantry to approach as a pincher, but the Texians opened fire and the attackers had to retreat to the Alamo. Finally, with really no moves left to make, General Coast sent Captain Sanchez to try to negotiate terms over the great objections of all of the other men. The siege officially ended on December 9th, and the Texian force clearly came out on top. The Mexican officers were paroled, and the army had to leave within six days. They also had to swear not to oppose the Mexican Constitution of 1824, and that they would not come back to Texas under arms. There had been between 30 and 35 casualties on the Texian side, and about 150 casualties on the Mexican side. Once the negotiations were over, the Mexican troops were allowed to stay in the Alamo until they were ready to leave, while the Texian troops kept to the town. Although, once the fighting was done, there was a lot of mingling between the two camps, especially among the locals, some of whom already knew each other from before the fighting started. Once Coz, Sanchez, and the rest of the Mexican troops moved out of the area on December 14th, 
They left behind the Alamo with all of its fortifications, along with cannons, muskets, powder, and ammunition. Word spread of the Texian victory at Bexar, and for a while, a lot of people believed that the war was over and that Texas had won. A lot of the people who had volunteered to be in the army went back home. And on the following March 1st, Texas declared its independence for Mexico at the Convention of 1836. At the convention, delegates wrote the Texas Declaration of Independence and they set up a provisional government with Sam Houston as the commander-in-chief. However, Santa Ana was not done with Mexico. And even as the Convention of 1836 was underway, the Alamo was under siege by Santa Ana's forces, which is, of course, another story. That is the Siege of Bexar. It kind of is the other bookend <laughs> to the the Battle of the Alamo and the Battle of San Jacinto that followed it. Do you have a little bit of listener mail for us? Why, yes, I do. Stupendous. Uh So I know it seems like we've read so many listener mails about uh, our our segregation podcasts and also our special education podcasts. And part of this is because there's a long stretch of podcasts that uh, that Holly prepared <laughs> that are all in a row. And like all of the mail is mail that uh, that that Holly can answer better than I can. So I keep picking ones from uh, from from those ones. And we also got so much great email about all of these. A so- lot of email that's been just wonderful to read. Yeah, and we'll probably never get through all of it. I will have ones that are flagged to be read forever, I think. So this is from Reagan, and Reagan says, I've really enjoyed your recent three-part podcast on the history of segregation and integration in the United States. While I was already familiar with a great deal of the subject matter presented, I enjoyed learning about the events in greater detail. What really struck a chord with me is your discussion of the continued efforts to integrate public schools well into the late 70s. Until now, I had always thought of integration as something that happened during my parents' early years, but after listening to part three, I realized that I was a participant myself. I am a black woman and was educated in public schools for the entirety of my primary education in three different states throughout the 80s and early 90s. I attended elementary school in a a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, that at that time was composed of predominantly upper-middle-class white Protestant and Jewish families. My family was one of the very few black families in the neighborhood. The year I started kindergarten, my elementary school transitioned. With this change, the composition of the student body changed from that reflective of the immediate neighborhood to a group including a significant number of black students from an adjacent neighborhood. I didn't realize that the new students were introduced to better integrate the school, but I did notice that I could mostly walk or bike to my white or Jewish friends' houses, but needed to be driven to any black friends' houses, save one. After elementary school, we moved to a far western suburb of Chicago, where I attended middle school and began high school. The neighborhood in which we lived was predominantly white, Protestant, and Catholic, the uh, the catchment area of the middle school was quite large because the area was transitioning from farmland to suburbs and was not yet densely populated. However, there were many more white students than black. Further to this, I rarely saw any of the other black students outside lunch and gym class. The high school drew from an even larger area that included a neighboring suburb that had a greater number of minority households, which created a relatively diverse student body. However, again, I only occasionally saw other black children in my classes. In fact, I was the sole black student in several classes in a school that had greater than 2,000 students. While I've always recognized that nearly all of my classmates have been white, 
I never really thought about why that was. After all, I've been one of the only black kids in the neighborhood my entire life, and I just assumed that was why I was one of the only black kids in my classes. Listening to your podcast enabled me to view the situation with greater complexity. During my primary school years, there was a strong trend toward tracking in Ohio and Illinois. Students were divided into class groups based on academic performance, and those groups rotated through all of the academic classes independently of each other. All throughout elementary school, I was in the gifted and talented program. My homeroom classes were reflective of the general student body. However, I was in a group of children who were separated for reading and math classes to work at a more advanced level. In middle school, the students were pulled into three groups. I don't remember the nomenclature, but I was tracked into the group of above-average students and don't recall seeing other black children in my classes. The middle schools and more diverse neighborhoods of the adjacent suburb had lower-quality schools. When the students from both schools were pulled together, it follows that many fewer of those children were able to test into the high school advanced placement classes in which I was enrolled. I completed high school in New Jersey in a relatively wealthy county. The residents of the three townships that pulled into two sister high schools were upper middle class and wealthy families. I was one of two black students in my graduating class, and there were less than six black students in the entire school during any of the three years in which I attended. Notably, the parents of the other black girl in my graduating class lived in Newark. She lived with her aunt and uncle who could afford to live in my neighborhood to become a legal resident and attend my school. When I think about how it was that I had the privilege of living in these wealthier white neighborhoods and taking advantage of their high-quality public school systems, a parallel story emerges. Both of my parents grew up in Chicago during the 1950s, a time when the city was strictly segregated. My mother's parents were laborers who each worked two to three jobs simultaneously so they could afford to send their three daughters to a private school. In both cases, the parents were aware of the disadvantages inherent to being a black family in a poor neighborhood and went to great lengths to ensure that their children could have the best education possible. After high school, my mother earned her bachelor's degree and later went on to earn her master's degree. I attended an Ivy League college, after which I went to medical school and am currently a practicing anesthesiologist. My younger brother earned a bachelor's degree from a well-respected university and has been quite successful in the computer-slash-informatics industry. Not bad for the child and grandchild of a black janitor slash taxi taxi driver and machinist. Uh, On an interesting end note, I married a blonde-haired, blue-eyed English-German man, and my brother's wife is Vietnamese. One cannot help but assume our upbringing and public school educations were significant contributions to this pattern. The positive and negative implications of this easily spur interesting discussions. Thanks for for continuing to present such interesting and thought-provoking podcasts. Uh, thank you so much, Reagan, for sending that. I know it was very long, but I wanted to read the whole thing um, because it is so reflective uh, also of my own uh, education, which has come up a couple of times naturally in the process of doing these podcasts. Um, I was growing up in the mostly rural South, and we had a very similar pattern in who was in the gifted classes and who was not. So hearing from someone with another perspective on that same pattern, uh, I thought was really interesting. If you would like to write to us, we were at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com where you can buy t-shirts and sweatshirts and whatnot. 
If you come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, you can put the word Alamo into the search bar and you will find Why Do We Remember the Alamo, which talks about events later than the podcast we talked about today. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you can find show notes and an archive of every episode ever. We occasionally put some cool blog posts up there. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.